You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClunathan, and I'm just sitting here expectantly, Wade, waiting for you to flaunt those loot skills that you are so often bragging about off the air. You know, Kevin, I just, I'm here for the heist, I'm here to steal, but I only steal in quantities of 300. It's just, it's it's my calling card. I'm kind of like the Sticky Bandits. Oh, I, I mean, that's that's cool. I guess if that's another one of your hobbies. I was kind of talking more about the medieval stringed instrument. You know, may, may get a little green sleeves up in here. I, yeah, I, I don't know, like looting, heists, what? Oh, I, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I was confused. I, I've never done anything illegal. Uh-huh, I, I got my eye on you. Listeners, today, we reviewed the new film from David Lowry, the medieval fantasy, The Green Knight. And all that talk about 300 wasn't totally in vain because this is episode 300 of the show. For this episode, we look back over the past six years or so that we have been podcasting and in all humility offer up for your consideration some of the times when we think, Wade, that we got it wrong. You know, Kevin, I can think of one time that I got it wrong, and that was when I was tempted to believe that I had ever gotten it wrong. (laughs) It, It might be a little bit of a short segment, but we'll find out here ahead on episode 300 of Seeing and Believing. Friends. Brothers and sisters. Who can... Regale me and my queen with some myth. Or tale. O greatest of kings, let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this game. I will be thee. Yes, listeners, this is episode 300. We've been doing this for about six and a half years. We're closing in on six and a half years. It's it's wild. We have thrown around a couple of ideas for this podcast. One of them, we were going to review Zack Snyder's film 300, but I don't have I don't have that many stars to rate that film. I mean, <laughs> how is it possible to go above five? I just... I can't do it, so we decided to pass on that, Kevin. Just give one star for every glistening ab mm. that appears in that film. That you know, you'll probably approach it, right? Wow! No, that's a great way to do it. So, Kevin and I are going to each bring a list of the moments when our opinions didn't quite stand the test of time. Before that, though, we're going to get to our review of The Green Knight. Directed by David Lowry, The Green Knight is a retelling of the anonymously written 14th century poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Here's the film's official synopsis. An epic fantasy adventure 
based on the timeless Arthurian legend, The Green Knight, tells the story of Sir Gawain, played by Dev Patel, King Arthur's reckless and headstrong nephew who embarks on a daring quest to confront the Green Knight, a gigantic emerald-skinned stranger and tester of men. Gawain contends with ghosts, giants, thieves, and schemers in what becomes a deeper journey to define his character and prove his worth in the eyes of his family and kingdom by facing the ultimate challenger. Kevin, we've reviewed a number of films from David Lowry, and surprisingly, I think one of the few times our top 10 of the years aligned is when we both had David Lowry's A Ghost Story on our number one spot years ago when that film was released. We've been thinking about this movie for a while. We've been anticipating The Green Knight for a while. So let's go ahead and just jump right in. There's so much to talk about. What did you make of this film? Man, so that is a really big question because there's a lot you can make out of this film. Mm. Uh, I I feel like I need to see it a second time to fully unpack it. But on initial viewing, I think it's a very strong film. And I have to say, Wade, it's really gratifying to come out of a movie uh, not like still kind of mulling it over and trying to decide what I think of it and still chewing it over. I feel like it's been a while since I've seen a movie that didn't really immediately let itself be apprehended. If that makes sense, you know, mm. there there's, we've seen, I've seen plenty of good movies this year, but all of them kind of are pretty readily graspable, right? Uh, they're just they they it's pretty clear what they are, what kind of story they're telling uh, the the path that they take from point A to point B is pretty clear. And that's not at all the case with David Lowry's latest film. And I think that's really nice. <laughs> mm. um, I it's it's um it's a strange film. And I I say that as a compliment because it's a film that for me feels like it really captures uh, the medieval era, not as we know it from a lot of pop culture or kind of the, the the way the popular image we have in our mind's eye when we think of Arthurian legend. And it really kind of creates this medieval era that is a lot more alien to our modern sensibilities. And I think it, Lowry, who wrote and directed, really deserves a lot of credit for 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 committing to that i guess for not making this hollywood version of a medieval setting but really kind of you know creating something that's fantastical yes but also feels very rooted in another time that might as well be fantasy for those of us living here in the 21st century and i i don't know i think that this is a film that requires a lot of the viewer but also rewards them in equal measure for for sticking with it so i liked it quite a bit uh i'm really interested to jump into the discussion with you wade because this is a film that probably admits as many readings as it has viewers so i I really Mm. want to hear what your take is yeah no i liked it and i mean for all the things that you talked about i i would say though i i feel like the meaning is 
I don't know. I feel like it's pretty straightforward near the end. There's a little bit of ambiguity throughout the story, but I don't know. I guess I walked away with what I felt like I I needed to know. And I've re- I read an interview by Lowry and he actually surprisingly goes into a little bit of the detail regarding a little bit of detail regarding the end ending. And so um, I, I, I almost felt like there probably could have been more in that regard, a little more ambiguity, but I, I do like this film and I do want to see it again because there is, there's a lot to unpack and there are some just amazing images I, I, I want to watch. I want to watch again. This really feels like one of the biggest cinematic moments of 2021 so far. Just seeing this and it being on the big screen and not releasing to home video. I don't know. There's it, it feels this feels strange to say, but it just feels old school in a way. Like it just it feels like we might not get a lot of movies like this in this way in the future. Um, it reminds me of of films we saw, you know, years ago, a couple of years ago, uh, rather than in 2020 and 2021. So make of that uh, what what you will. But I like this film a lot. There's so much to commend. Um, and yeah, we're going to get into some of those big ideas as we as we go through this this podcast. Well, I think one of the things that is to be commended about this film is on its face, it's it's a pretty simple story. Uh, Gawain encounters the Green Knight at a Christmas feast at Arthur's table. Uh, he decapitates the Green Knight. The Green Knight has said that in a year, Gawain is going to have to make a pilgrimage to the Green Knight's abode and receive the exact same stroke that he gives at the Christmas feast. And the entire film is basically Gawain going there and kind of encounter, having these little episodic adventures along the way. And none of them are, you know, terribly complex. There's not like a, a lot of twistiness in the plot. And yet uh, Lowry finds so many ways to take this simple on its face story and add a lot of a lot of crunch to it for for somebody who's who's being really attentive. There's a lot to uh, mull over in terms of you know, what is virtue? What is courage? Uh, what do our ideas of those concepts, how do those align with a medieval view of, of things? Is the, is the Green Knight an antagonist? Is he something else? There's so much there that you can, you can kind of discuss and think about. And at least at my screening, people were doing that. People were walking out of the theater and they're standing around in the lobby and they're just talking about what they thought of this film. And that I think is a really big testament to Lowry's artistry and also just the care with which he goes about creating this entire universe while the film is is running that people can then discuss when the lights come back up. Mm, mm. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like I'm I'm in a I'm in a world. And it seems strange to to say, oh, Lowry is world building here because there are certain tags attached to that phrase, but it does feel like a fully fleshed out environment. And we don't know all the rules of this environment. There is magic. There are dragons. There are talking animals. So 
in in one sense, we're we never get a full glimpse of what is what's real, what's a dream, what's out of character for this universe, and yet we get enough to know. And we are we're here. We're in the middle of this this environment. And some of the scenes here are, are pretty long. And I know there there are some individuals who've seen the film that complain about that aspect of the movie. But just listening to these characters talk, sitting in these scenes, really helps me to, to just be there, to sit in these colors, to sit in this environment. And I, I definitely appreciate that about, about the film. There are a lot of people who are going to watch this trailer and they're going to go into the movie expecting something very straightforward. And they're not going to get that. They're going to be disappointed. But I think the film is better for that. And I think this dreamlike quality, this fantasy quality, uh, just really adds to the overall scope of the story. And there are some scenes in this movie, Kevin, that I don't quite understand. Uh, there's one that involves uh, the main character searching for a, for a head. And I don't, I don't necessarily know what that means other than it is a scene that wrestles with death. And for an individual who's scared he's going to lose his head, that carries some sort of resonance with it. But at the same time, I feel something whenever I watch that scene. And I feel like that scene just kind of nails what the film is trying to do, even if I don't fully comprehend why it is there. It's there, and I, and it, and it just, it, it makes, it makes me feel something. It, it, uh, it further along some of this, these themes, some of these ideas, and so, yeah, I, I, I like this movie quite a bit. Yeah, I'm gonna preface what I'm, I'm gonna say next here by with, with a little bit of a disclaimer. I have read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, in college. I have extremely hazy memories of it, though, so I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have strong memories of how and where this film adapts that poem. I've I've read some some stuff online about just to kind of like jog my memory a little bit, but you know, all that to say, like I, this is a lot of that's coming secondhand. I don't really remember the source material all that strongly. But what I will say is that just from a, a general familiarity with the kind of literature of which Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is is a part, this film adaptation feels very faithful, maybe not in terms of specifics, but in creating, in, in reproducing, I guess, the feel of those kinds of tales, those kinds of folk tales, the Arthurian legends, the 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 quest narratives, where a lot of it is kind of episodic, and you know the the hero goes to one place and he meets some characters and interacts with them. He goes to another place and meets some characters and so on and so forth. And these encounters sometimes you know tie in on on a certain level thematically with the overarching quest narrative that he's on, but they're not necessarily tied in super strongly. It's more about just um, revealing things about our hero, revealing things about the world in which he lives, 
And maybe there's a little bit of, of thematic heft to it, but that's kind of tertiary. And that sequence you mentioned where uh, it's an encounter with St. Winifred, I think is that mm-hmm. chapter's title. And uh, it's kind of just this, he, he goes to a haunted house essentially, and a ghost tells him she wants him to uh, retrieve her head from a pool. And he does, and then he leaves. And yet it feels, it just has this, this ghostly quality that is mostly, to me at least, about world building. There are th- thematic resonances about how, you know, he goes there after uh, an encounter with some highwaymen who, uh, you know, take, who take his possessions and rob him and leave him for dead in a forest uh, because they don't think that he was uh, helpful enough. He didn't, uh, he didn't give them enough money for providing directions earlier. Uh, and they, they think that he didn't do enough for them in return for the help they provide for him. And then in the sequence with St. Winifred, uh, he kind of says, if I get you your head, what will you give me in return? And Winifred kind of just stares him and asks him, why would you ask me something like that? Why won't you just help me? Why won't you be a knight who helps a damsel in need rather than, you know, asking what's in it for me, I guess. And that's, it's a subtle character building moment for Gawain, but also just kind of adds a little bit of shading to the kind of world in which he lives where he deserves to be reprimanded for asking a ghost what he gets, you know, what's in the deal for him for helping out a ghost. Like that's, that's the kind of, world where where we live where the fact that she's a ghost asking for her head is maybe less important than gawain's response to that situation and i think that lowry shows a lot of savvy in kind of letting that that sequence breathe and just spending so much time on it rather than kind of you know bending over backwards trying to tie it into some some grander narrative scheme that Mm -hmm. would be kind of a more modern american hollywood way of storytelling and lowry's not really going to do that with this film and i i appreciate that about it yeah and it, it, just the fact that dev patel's character does very little right in the movie he does not do very many noble things in the film and this is a movie about glory or honor, greatness, or goodness? What will you choose? And I think maybe now is a good time to get into some of the theological uh, issues surrounding the film. There is, there's a lot to say. There's a lot to say about the source material, and it's been a while since I've read it uh, as well, Kevin. So I, I, I remember glimpses of of the of the poem. But uh, this is a film that uh, takes place at the beginning on Christmas Day. The knight shows up, the green knight, and he challenges someone to a duel. And it is fascinating because if I remember correctly, the poem, that takes place on New Year's Eve. So there's, there's something there, right? Oh, beginning of the year, and then you've got this entire year before you have to meet the green knight again. Here, it happens on Christmas, and we do hear the church bells at one point earlier before that scene occurs, 
Uh, we see a, a church sort of shrouded in mist. And Lowry, if if I had to if I had to make a guess from from what he's said in interviews in, in this film, he doesn't have a high view of Christianity here. And the original poem is sort of this tension between Christianity uh, within the King Arthur legend and sort of a paganism. And we get that with the Green Knight and we get that with some sorcery that's involved in that entire plot. And I was reading an interview with Lowry. I mentioned it um, before, um, but he, he talks about how Sean Harris's King Arthur and Kate Dickey's Queen uh, Guinevere are depicted as sort of sickly, waning monarchs, it says in this interview. And then he goes on to say this. The only references to Christianity in the film are from King Arthur. The idea is that there's some sort of rot at the heart of that court. And then he also says, my parents would love for me to say it's not a war, but in 2021, I have to say I kind of view it that way. He goes on to talk about some of the last images too. And he says, I'm someone who loves peace and I want to live in a world where those two things can exist hand in hand. But in our culture now, I don't see that happening. So there's this sort of fascinating clash between the Christianity in the film and, and perhaps even that today and this sort of uh, free spirit, this uh, this. I, I, I don't I wouldn't compare it to, to paganism, but in the, in the movie it is sort of this paganism. There's this clash, and we definitely see this hypocrisy in King Arthur's court, and it, it's just kind of fascinating, really, to to think about as we discuss this film and as we discuss uh, this character and what this character sets out to do, and where that inevitably leaves him in the end. And I think the ending is kind of telling there. Yeah, the the depiction of how Christianity and paganism live side by side is is present even in in King Arthur's court. I mean, you know, Arthur and, and Guinevere are obviously you know good Christians, and you know the people, the the knights around the table, you know, they they go to mass and all that. But also, you see Merlin there, and Merlin is uh, you know. He's got some some facial uh, makeup or tattoos that recall, you know, druidic kind of symbols. And uh, there's uh, depictions of uh, some pagan rituals happening. And it all it all really creates this impression of a, a foggy aisle where Christianity has taken root, but only just and there's all sorts of other things in the world besides the Catholic Church. And that is that works for this film really well, simply because Gowan is trying to to be a good knight. He he does want to have honor and to rise to Arthur's level and be considered to to be um worthy of the honors bestowed on him. And where where does that 
that sense of of need come from? Well, it comes from partly um, the Catholic Church, which confers uh, this legitimacy upon him, and where which even provides some uh, sense of belonging or protection for him. You know, Gawain has the the image, the icon of the Virgin Mary on the inside of his shield. It's obviously something that is taken seriously, and yet it's not it's not the only thing there is. And that feels, you know, it it does feel of a piece with what we know of the the early church. I mean, obviously this isn't set in a historical time, but you do know that uh when the Catholic Church was was spreading over Europe and uh you know taking root in previously pagan places, there was uh, some synthesis of the Christian belief with pagan belief. And seeing that kind of put through here really renders Gowan's moral and spiritual dilemmas really poignant because there's so much kind of tugging at him in different directions, self-preservation, uh, paganism, like pagan uh, protections. He has this girdle that supposedly has magical powers to protect him. And then the Virgin Mary, and all of them are kind of acting upon him, and that creates uh, this really compelling conflict in Ga- within Gawain himself. And I think Dev Patel really illustrates that well as kind of this guy who is unsure of himself. He's young, he wants to prove himself, but he's not really sure how to prove himself, and he's not sure that he wants the consequences that will follow once he does. Mm-hmm. And just the the idea of what it means to be great in King Arthur's court. It's simply it's simply courage. Uh, character seems to not be all too important or as important. And throughout the film, Patel's character has to wrestle with that. He has to understand that. And that's what makes the ending so fascinating i wish i wish we could we could talk about that a little bit more but the the cast here is is really wonderful i like sean harris a lot as uh, king arthur and uh joel edgerton he's he's really great alicia vikander is uh she's fantastic here production design the cinematography i love how the cinematography builds on that dreamlike quality. I mean, it really, it's it's kind of a cornerstone of that dreamlike quality in the film. You get shots from above. Who is watching? Um, is it um, the magic at work? Is it the god of King Arthur's court? What's, what's looking out for them? And there's this other scene where Patel's character is walking and he sees these giants in in the distance and it, he just feels so incredibly small and those knights around King Arthur's court if you think back to that scene they just they feel small as well and right after that scene the shot basically uh, there's a shot where the camera just kind of flips upside down and it really is this moment of reckoning for Patel's character. The idea that the individuals I thought who were in power really are just kind of pawns 
for everything happening in in the universe. And the fact that Lowry puts together a movie that's not necessarily plot heavy allows him to really just kind of sink into a lot of these scenes and to not just tell us what's going on, but to really kind of show us, to emerge us in these ideas and in these feelings. And I think that's what makes this film very, very special. What I really love about Lowry's films is perspective. The the sense that he brings of perspective on his characters' lives and their place in the universe. Uh, I mean, uh, you you see that from everything from a ghost story, which, which you and I both really liked, kind of the, the way that it moves through time. There are a couple of shots in a ghost story that we see echoed here in The Green Knight where Lowry cuts uh, from uh, one image to a field of stars or, or the night sky. And in doing so, re- creates this relationship between the, the cos- you know, this cosmic idea of the universe, the fact that there are things beyond the earthbound world in which we live that are somehow intertwined with our own existences. And you see that here when, for example, Gawain is diving for St. Winifred's head there's a, a cut to a star field mm. while he's while he's underwater where the the bubbles underwater become stars in a night sky. It's just it's lovely cinematography. And you know, obviously Andrew Droz Palermo, the director of photography, worked on a ghost story as well. Lowry edited both films. It's just it you you really see the relationship among all these films. And you even see it in something like the old Lowry's film, The Old Man and the Gun, where simply the age of the central character gives him a perspective on mm. the shape of an entire life. And we see that echoed here in The Green Knight, where we jump forward in time a, f- a few times over the course of the film, where uh, Gowan kind of gets a glimpse of of his future, of his death, of his of his old age, of what might await him if he takes if he makes certain decisions and takes certain paths. And I, I just think it's it's really wonderful to see Lowry find different ways of conferring this perspective on the audience just as Gowan experiences it himself. Mm-hmm. And that inevitability of the future, the inevitability of death throughout this film, which kind of makes it ironic that... This happens around Christmas and birth. I think there's something to be said about uh, celebrating new life while uh, the end of a reign is occurring. And I think that is kind of a comment on at least this type of Christianity, if not Christianity, or just what surrounds Christianity in our country today and uh, a lot to unpack. I do want to see this again. I mentioned that before. You mentioned that. I'm I'm excited to hopefully work through some of these some of these questions that I do have. Like I mentioned before, though, I, I feel like the the big themes and the ideas are are pretty clear. They're pretty straightforward, and most of the interpretation or some of the some of the small details and then the ending in terms of just kind of the plot 
But I think the ending gives us everything we need to know. It gives us the entire story, especially if you remember the end of the poem and how that um, how this film diverges from that. Uh, it definitely is a comment on the same issue and some of the issues we've been talking about: nobility, character, bravery, courage, uh, just from a just from a different angle. Yeah, and even I, I think one of the key ingredients in why this film works for me is that you know i felt pretty at sea for maybe the the first act you know it took me a while to key into the sound so i could kind of understand what the dialogue was and and you know kind of really follow what different characters were saying with their their heightened diction you know heightened medieval diction and um, I, I wasn't quite sure I was following everything that was that was going on in its particulars. I kind of got the broad strokes, but wasn't really sure did I miss something earlier. And as the film went on, it, you know, the film doesn't really stop to sort of like say, okay, here's the story so far. You know, kind of here's here's the part where the characters sit down and explain the plot to each other. Lowry doesn't do that, and he kind of just lets you sit with that that sense of of being at seal, being a little bit lost. And he trusts the audience to, you know, stick with him and allow themselves to just be thrown into the deep end. And eventually the audience does learn to swim by the end of the film. And I don't know, I think that that's really the mark of of an excellent director who has that kind of faith in his audience and isn't is fully willing to build his film around that kind of sense of dislocation rather than mm-hmm. trying to avoid it entirely or or run away from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of questions too on Patel's character's mother and the plot that she, the way that she moves along the plot, I should say, throughout this film. And the book says one thing, but it's not necessarily clear here. And it is a little bit different, I think, than than the original poem. Listeners, that is our review of The Green Knight. If you had a chance to see the film, make sure to let us know your thoughts. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about the times we felt like we got it wrong these last 300 episodes. I don't think we'll come back at episode 600, Kevin, and say we got the Green Knight wrong. But who knows? <laughs> All that's coming up here in just a moment on Seeing and Believing. Listeners, we could have not done these 300 episodes without you. You've really supported us throughout the years. You've rated, you've reviewed us, given us good reviews for the most part. You've shared episodes with your friends. You've shared episodes online. And many of you have also donated to our Patreon campaign. You supported us there. Thank you so much for doing that. We've got a number of different donation levels. If you haven't had a chance to hop on over to our Patreon page, go ahead and check that out. And you know, Kevin, these last 300 episodes, we've asked a question that I think we need to ask here today. It involves one of our donation levels. 
It's the what can you buy for $5 level, and you get a lot of great perks there. It also begs the question, what can someone buy, Kevin, for five bucks? Well, you could give $5 a month to Seeing and Believing, or if you're so inclined, $5 a month would also get you a subscription to a hot dog service. So, Mm. you know, like it's kind of old hat at this point to observe that hot dogs and hot dog buns do not arrive in proportional amounts Mm. in their respective uh, packages. So you need sometimes a subscription service to like get those extra few hot dogs that you need. Mm-hmm. To fill out your your uh, your hot dog feast, it seems like a a no brainer and five dollars a month. Like you know, that you you could do worse for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of reminds me of a skit on the new season of I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. If you've seen the new season, you know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> you got to have enough hot dogs to hide in your suit jacket in case you need to eat on the fly during a business meeting. And what better way to do that than a membership, Kevin? I I think that's an inspired idea. I agree. It is an inspired (laughs) idea. Thank you. And of course, listeners, if you're not the hot dog sort, like Wade said, we are always happy to accept your $5 a month over at our Patreon. So definitely head on over there and check it out and, you know, weigh, weigh the pros and cons, hot dog delivery service subscription versus supporting your favorite uh movie review podcast over here at seeing and believing but if you know you you kind of prefer to keep your your money to yourself we still do love hearing all of our listeners thoughts on the movies that they've been watching lately the opinions they have on uh this or that opinion that you and i wade have put forward on the show And we actually heard from uh, Lindsay Dunn about our old review. We talked about that, and it was a little bit of a split decision. Like, you liked it a little bit more than I did. Um, Lindsay wrote in to say, Hi, Wade and Kevin. I enjoyed your old discussion. I had very mixed feelings about the movie, and I thought you both made excellent points. One of the things that Kevin criticized is the whole uh, situation, and she goes on to describe how Uh, You know, the characters often say, I'm a doctor, so I have this set of plot relevant skills and I'm a statistician, so I have this uh, set of plot relevant skills. Lindsay goes on to write, one thing I've noticed is that this is a big theme that crosses M. Night's work. Starting with signs, he had these threads that weren't explained until the end, like, for example, the baseball skills of Joaquin Phoenix's character, Merle. If it wasn't for that skill, he wouldn't have been able to protect his family. Likewise, in Lady in the Water... There were all of these random people living at the apartment complex. Each of them were quirky and had unusual gifts, but because of those traits, they are all able to help. In this case, maybe M. Knight tried to hit it way too hard in old, but I've always liked that about his stories. There's the concept that everyone has a purpose and a role to play, no matter how small it seems. Thanks for writing in with those thoughts, Lindsay. I'm not sure that I am as fond of that tendency of M. Knight's that as as you are i you know but it is true that uh lindsay is right on that he does kind of return to this idea of of people have having a destiny or a role to fulfill in all of his movies uh it's an interesting through line to chart through all of his movies good and bad so that's a really interesting observation thanks for writing in to point that out yes thanks lindsay and did disagree kevin But uh, I certainly still like old. 
Listeners, you can head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter at cbeliefpod or through email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Well, listeners, as promised, this is the second half of our show where we are going to, I don't know, share uh, some of our, our opinions as we look back over the last six years. I feel like we've done plenty of celebration, Wade, with <laughs> yes. our uh, <laughs> over our, you know, where we got it right or our accomplishments that we're really proud of. And that's all that's all really great. But uh you know, there is something to be said for, you know, taking a deep breath and taking stock of the places where we may not have gotten it right. And that's part of that's part of learning and growing as well. So that's what we're going to do here in the second half. Are, are you ready, Wade? Have you? Uh, you know, uh, I'm ready. I will say this. After 300 episodes, I'm surprised how how little mistakes were made. I mean, I, if we made 150 mistakes over the course of 300 episodes, I'd probably be pretty happy. So any number below that is just, it's gravy, Kevin. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you have not eaten nearly enough humble pie yet. So you better better strap in because we are going to talk about those those few times when we do kind of feel like we missed the mark a little bit. I am curious to know, kind of as you were going back through the uh, the backlog that we've built up over the last six years or so, was there was there anything that kind of stuck out to you about, you know, about our our older shows versus our, our newer shows or the way that you formulated your opinions now versus then? I, I that's <laughs> that's something that I found really interesting. But I'm curious to know what your experience was. Oh, man. You know, just going through all of the episodes and there were multiple times when I was thinking to myself, did did we, wait, did we review that film? I don't remember not only reviewing that film, but watching that film. What was that film about? It was just, it's kind of wild when you start stacking those up. And then just our early days, you see a lot of experimentation with different types of podcast episodes. And of course, we used to do two segments, kind of like we, we do now multiple movies and we've kind of pared that down and it was just a fun little walk through memory lane and to look back at at some of my uh, favorite episodes episodes where i felt like oh yeah we had some great discussions we had a, a great interview we talked about david lowry i don't even know if we've mentioned it but we you interviewed david lowry for the show so it's just kind of a lot of fun to go through all of that and yeah i mean there were some movies that I came across that we'd reviewed, and I just I thought to myself, "Oh, I haven't seen that in six years, and I don't plan to watch it again." Just <laughs> and then others, oh, I you know I gave that a positive review. I I need to watch that again. It, it that was oh, a, that was man. a good movie. 
Wait, how then can we be positive that the uh, the items that you've gotten on your list here are, you know, how, how do we know that this list is comprehensive? Maybe if you went back mm. and rewatched, say, The Last Witch Hunter starring Vin Diesel playing oh, man. an incarnation of his D&D character. Maybe if you went back and took the time to seriously reevaluate that film, maybe you'd find that your earlier dismissal was a little bit wrongheaded. And I don't mm. know. I, f- I feel like you just didn't take this project seriously at all, Wade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, oh, man. Just movies like that that nobody really saw when they came out and nobody's seen since then. I, that, that was when the viewers, they picked that movie for us to watch. That was funny. They that did. Was, yeah. Uh, maybe yeah maybe i just need to go back and watch some more movies before we do this but i do have a i do have a list of three i have a list of three that i changed my mind on and here's what's kind of fascinating i chose to concentrate not on movies that i liked that i suddenly stopped liking I didn't see a big jump in a lot of those. I saw some that were like, ah, I, re- I gave that a, a really good review. I thought it was okay, you know, after I watched it again. But instead, I, I put together a list of films that I like even more now. And some of them I, I gave a positive review to, others I didn't. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, that was a, pre- that was a pretty good film. So I chose to concentrate more on kind of the positive aspects of it, Kevin. Okay, that's that's interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing about those. Uh, one thing that I noticed going back through our backlog is if if there's one kind of thing that I feel like I'm most embarrassed by in the past, it's maybe not so much my specific opinions, but just my speech patterns in some of these earlier episodes. I had some verbal tics, and I probably still have some different verbal tics now, but back then I was, I was listening, I was like, I, Kevin sure does say I'm not entirely sure that something is, you know, the X, you know, the I'm not entirely <laughs> sure formulation crops up a lot in those earlier episodes. And if there was an, you know, like some retrospective where we talk about just our verbal tics that we are embarrassed by and wish would go away from those earlier episodes, that would definitely be at the top of my list. Oh, um, man. But I also have three films that... I found my opinion migrating on, and most of them aren't really uh, drastic. Like, there's not, there aren't any picks on here where you know I loved it and now I hate it, or I hated it and now I think it's great. Um, they're, you know, it's more subtle than that. But I did find myself realizing, you know what? I think that I would go back and give a completely different review if we could you know, re-record some of these earlier episodes. So mm-hmm. uh, we're going to mm-hmm. talk about those in a little bit, but we'll start with you, Wade. So you get to have that humble pie before I do. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, what's, what's your, your first pick here? Uh, well, before we jump in that, and another thing to add on to, it is fascinating to look at our past episodes and to see, Oh wow. A movie that I love. That's like one of my favorites. Oh, that was the first time I watched it. Like Mad Max Fury Road, like just kind of movies that I think are classics now. Just, oh, yeah, that's when I first reviewed it. Um, so it is it is fun to look back. Yeah, so I just I wanted to stir the pot a little bit with this one, Kevin. I oh, wanted boy. to just add a little bit of drama and a little bit of conflict. <laughs> this movie came out, and I saw it early. We both uh, each individually saw a critic screening of this so we were able to review it 
and release the episode on the day the film released. And we don't get to do that all the time, but it was really, really big film. So I saw it on like maybe a Tuesday and then Priscilla wanted to see it. So I saw it, I think on a Friday night. And first time I saw it, I was just like, oh no, I I don't know. I was just disappointed. I think I gave it maybe like two and a half or three stars out of five. And then I saw it that Friday night and I was just like, no, I'm just not feeling this again. And that movie is Avengers Infinity War. I just, I did not no. think, yeah, I didn't think it was that great. No. And then, <laughs> and then Endgame came out and I really like Endgame. And so I've seen Infinity War probably twice since those initial two viewings. Watched it a couple days ago. And maybe just because there's almost like this little bit of nostalgia there, you know, like, oh, we're not going to see... Robert Downey Jr. anymore. Or, oh, we're not going to see this character anymore. Uh, and then also knowing that there are stakes. Because when I first saw Infinity War and they, you know, the snap thing happens, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're just going to bring him back. Like, this is dumb. But even though they brought them back, there are still consequences to all those individuals being gone. So you take those movies, you put them together, and now I like Infinity War. I think it's a pretty good movie, and um, I enjoy watching it. I think I was, I think I was wrong, Kevin. Oh man, well, I, you're wrong about something. That's for sure. <laughs> no, I, I like, yeah, I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. It's, I'm glad that you, you found your way around to, to liking it a little bit more. Uh, I have not found my opinion evolving and i actually you know i did rewatch it okay um i i can't remember you know how long after uh it, i i saw i rewatched it on netflix so it was long enough past the the initial release date that netflix had picked it up and was showing it and this was before disney plus happened so mm. marvel movies were still allowed to be on a different streaming service so so i caught it again then and i it, it did it did not improve for me on, on that second viewing. I was really, I, I don't have a, you know, I don't have a, a smartphone that I keep with me while I watch movies, but I did kind of find myself thinking, man, I would really rather be kind of like scrolling through Twitter or something rather than watching this long, <laughs> this long battle scene. It did, it did not hold my interest anymore on the second time through than, mm. than the first time, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what's your number three? What's what, okay. what, what film did you get wrong? Well, yeah, I'm not going to be quite as you know positive as as you. I've got kind of a mixture of three. I've got you know uh, one where you know I I liked it and now I've cooled off on it a little bit. I've got one where I had hesitations about something and now I've you know I I think it's kind of a masterpiece. And then I've got kind of a mixture of both. So I'll start with the more negative one first and kind of get that out of the way. Way back in 2016, Wade. You and I reviewed La La Land on episode 90 of, of the podcast. 210 episodes ago, we we reviewed La La Land and we both just really liked it. I think I had I expressed like some misgivings about the the ending, but overall thought it was really strong. Uh, two episodes later in our top 10 episodes, we both had La La Land on our top 10. You had it at number one. I think I had it at number 10. Um and I still like La La Land okay. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I've really cooled off on it since then. I went back and, and looked at my top 10 from that year, and uh, I would not put La La Land even in the top 15 now anymore. I think the 
you know, uh, fences I caught up with a little bit later and that, you know, bumps La La Land off my top 10 officially. And then just looking at what else was on there, like the Hirokazu Koreeda, Our Little Sister, uh, there was Manchester by the Sea on there, you know, all sorts of, of films that if I were to go back and, and redo things today, I would rank them all above La La Land, which, you know, is enjoyable, but definitely not an all-time movie. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, I, I overpraised it a little bit. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I guess I, I have to repent and dust sackcloth and ashes, or I guess since it's La La Land, I'd have to repent in some brightly colored uh, you know, dance worthy, uh, wardrobe number or something. Who knows? Kevin, I think you got false guilt. Uh, I, I you know, I had La La Land at number one and I, I would keep it at number one. I, I love that movie. I, I, it's fantastic. I, I turn it on every once in a while. Uh, some, sometimes when I'm working, I'll actually just turn on clips or even sometimes maybe just the soundtrack. I, I really like that film. It's one of my, yeah, it's one of my favorites. And I'm, I'm surprised that it dropped that far for you. I, I, I think it's, I think it's great. I mean, they just, they don't make movies like that anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I think when I've, you know, as time has gone on, I've become less and less enchanted by the, the music that like the songs and the the choreography which are kind of it being a musical or sort of like you need to keep being enchanted by those things for a musical to rightfully be considered a a mat you know like a, a classic at least in my mind i just i kind of find myself thinking you know like gosling and stone are charming but i just i'm not as involved with their stories and and the dreams that they're trying to achieve as i was back in 2016 which you know again it's not something where I, I've turned around and I just think it's a bad movie now, but it's just, it's not one that I find myself really thinking about that much or wanting to, to give a second viewing all that much. Wow. Wow, man. That was a, that was a twist. Um, didn't expect <laughs> that. Uh, I, you know, I was, I was thinking of uh, some others to uh, throw in number two. I, I like love and friendship and I gave it a, a pretty positive review you had it on your top 10 i actually thought more about that film i like that film a little bit more i like crazy rich asians a little bit more i think it's a really good rom-com but ultimately for number two i landed on a film we talked about in episode 143 and that's alex garland's annihilation annihilation still isn't one of those movies that i would just oh yeah let's turn it on it's a rainy sunday afternoon it's not one of those movies that I, I would say necessarily just enjoy or absolutely love, but I think it was a little too hard on the film and didn't quite get on the wavelength that uh, Garland's wavelength. I think that Annihilation in 20 years will be seen as this really kind of groundbreaking science fiction work. Not only is it uh, tense not only is there this mystery to it, not only is it is it disturbing at times, but it's also it also contains this very personal story, and it does deal with with guilt in many ways and grief in many ways. And I didn't realize it at the time, but um, I'm thinking now maybe Annihilation will become a science fiction classic uh, for a lot of people here soon. So I um I got it wrong. I I like it. I like it much more now. Yeah, I mean, like, that's a, a pretty good pick for, you know, a, a possible future classic. You think about something like 
Blade Runner, you know, when it when it first came out and oh, just, yeah. you know, had had a more mixed reception and some people didn't care much for it at all, but you know, over time it became the you know, this enduring classic of the genre. And I think Annihilation's a, a good candidate for that as well. I I liked it a lot when I first saw it and I still like it. I haven't had a chance to revisit it, so I I'm curious to know if I would if I would kind of follow the same trajectory as you, Wade, and, and think of it like I liked it before, but now I think it's a, a stone cold masterpiece. I think that that's a that's a, a good pick. Yeah, and you know, I I I didn't quite like it when I first saw it, so it, it, maybe it's able to bump a little bit higher for me just because it was a you know a little bit a little bit lower. D- do you happen to remember, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you went back and like listened to the actual episode, but do you remember kind of what it was about Annihilation that you're kind of meh about uh, initially? I didn't listen to the episode, but thinking back, it was more so just what I felt like was kind of this fragment nature of the movie and disjointed nature. And then there were moments when I felt like some of the bizarreness or the disturbing elements were there more for kind of shock or for feeling rather than actual meaning. And I, I think those elements are of course there for shock and for feeling, but I think there are also some some meaning there that I didn't quite understand before. And I don't think I got to the personal story. I think I was a little cold on that personal story, which uh, works a little bit better now. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty fair. I I uh, didn't think to go back and and re-listen to that episode myself, but now I kind of want to to, to compare the Wade of 2021 with the Wade of doesn't like <laughs> annihilation. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, my next uh, shame-faced confession is that. I think, and this is again not a drastic about face, but more just kind of realizing just how good a couple of films are, and how wrong I was to not just immediately recognize that because, in in retrospect, it seems so obvious. So, and and this ties into your pick a little bit because it's another Alex Garland film. Uh, it's his film Ex Machina. When we first reviewed it, I mm. you know we we both liked it, but I just. Yeah, you know, there's something about the ending that just didn't sit right with me. It felt like it was a little bit too too cruel or too pat. There was something just schematic about it at the time that I thought was just I it didn't sit right with me. So while I recognized that, you know, Alicia Vikander was a future star, I still think that's probably her best performance. I was kind of like, yeah, it's good. It's maybe not perfect, but now I think it's uh, like you think with Annihilation, I think Ex Machina is a sci-fi masterpiece, and I think it's, you know, one of these films that will endure and that people will will keep watching. Um, I find myself thinking about it a lot, especially you know having seen Vikander in The Green Knight, just thinking about her incredible performance as the android in in Ex Machina. It's just wonderful. Um, and while I was thinking about Ex Machina, I also had a similar. Uh, about face or a similar evolution with the witch uh back mm-hmm. on episode 51 so even earlier days we reviewed the witch and i liked it but i just it had disturbed me so much that i was i was hesitant about praising it too much just because i thought it was so its per- depiction of satanic evil was so real that it made me uncomfortable and 
I now see that uh, obviously that is exactly what mm. the film was going for, what Robert Eggers is going for, and it needs to be recognized and praised for as such. And I think as time has gone on, like with Ex Machina, I just I think about the witch all the time, and I think that it's still maybe the of all the movies ever made about uh, demonic activity and and satanic oppression. Uh, I think the witch is the one that really feels like Eggers understands a Christian view of spiritual evil in a way that all these, you know, other demon possession movies just can't match. Mm. I have not seen that movie since I saw it in theaters and it severely freaked me out. I don't know when I'll watch it again, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot and it, it, I don't know, it's definitely of the genre where, you know, <laughs> that horror genre, subgenre where you get to the end and it's like, okay, now worship Satan. And, and it like the A24 kind of thing. I, um, I don't know. I, I need to watch it again. I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. I, I mean, it's effective. It really is frightening, but, um, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know how much I can endorse it, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe one day I'll get the guts to watch it again. Yeah, well, let, let me know what you think when you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that might be episode 600, I'm not sure. Uh, so <laughs> the the last film that I'm going to talk about uh, is a movie I actually gave um, a good review to. I gave it a good review. It didn't end up in my top 10 of the year, and it, it really should have. I've seen the movie once or twice since... I saw it in theaters, and I just think it's uh, i think it's fantastic. I think it, too, will be a science fiction classic here soon, and that's Denis Villeneuve's 2016 Arrival. If you go back and you look at episode 68, you'll probably hear me talk about a number of things that I enjoyed about the film. But I also mentioned that some of the scenes just kind of felt cool to me, some of the personal elements. And I don't know if I was maybe going along for the rhythm at that point, but watching it again, it just, it really does work. And I love the way that this film plays with language and communication and how it equates that to the journey that the characters are kind of walking through. Uh, And so I went from saying, oh, this was a pretty good film with a few uh, a few weaknesses to, I think this is a really, really fantastic movie, uh, close to like a masterpiece status, and really kind of just regretting that it wasn't in my uh, top ten of 2016 because it it really should have been. Was it really not anywhere in your top ten? It, it wasn't. It wasn't, and that's and that's part of the reason why it's huh. it's here, just because uh, I let myself down and I let all of my all of the <laughs> listeners out there down uh, with this film. You. You let us down so much. We are going to have to, you know, get some aliens down here to, you know, speak to you in a different language and show you the error of your ways yep. uh, through, you know, making you come unstuck in time or something. I don't know. I lost the thread there a little bit, but I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm surprised that Arrival, I, I know since you're such a, a Villeneuve fan and mm-hmm. you like sci-fi, I just, it's, it, 
I, for some reason, I guess in my mind, I thought, oh yeah, that's a, that's a Wade movie. Of course he would have it on mm-hmm. his top 10. So mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that you're finally uh, aligning your opinions with my mental image of you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I should have, I should have bumped it up more. And like I said, I, I liked it. And, and if listeners go back and they, they listen to the review, they're like, oh, we gave it a positive review. And I did. I just, um, I really think it's, it's a special, it really is a special movie. Yeah, it it is really good. I I think I had it on my top. 10 I think so. For, yeah, for that year. So it it is a good one. Um, I'm looking forward to revisiting it myself. Um, so speaking of revisiting, we uh, back in you know during the pandemic, we uh, you know some new releases were a little bit light on the ground. So you and I kind of did this thing where we did some retrospectives on some some famous auteurs who were having new movies that were supposed to come out in 2020, and we decided you know what, we're going to go back and you know rewatch their entire body of work and just sort of rank them on the show and discuss them a little bit. So obviously Tenet was coming out that year. And so we did one for Christopher Nolan, episode 244. And, you know, on that episode, I went back and rewatched a bunch of, of films I'd seen before. One of them was a film that we had actually reviewed earlier on the show in episode 117. I think we talked about Dunkirk. And that was a film, you know, I liked it. Um, but, you know, going back in and thinking about it again for the Chris Nolan retrospective, I was like, Dunkirk's really good. Like, really good. Is it the one of the best mm. war movies of the mm-hmm. new millennium? I kind of think it might be. And, you know, so I'm kind of embarrassed to go back now to 117. Where I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. But, you know, I, I don't know if it's great or anything. And I'm just... Shame on Kevin for for not recognizing how good it was uh, when it for, when it first came out. But making up for that now, and I'm at least going to to own up to the another change in opinion that was brought about by that retrospective. I went back and rewatched Inception and did not like it nearly as much as I did when I saw it back in 2010. Ah, uh, so kind of poor Christopher Nolan. You know, I. He, this this episode giveth and taketh away as far as he's concerned mm, mm. one step forward one step back yeah i um i i'm looking at my top 10 so we did do that episode and yeah dunkirk is number two and inception is is number three of course the dark knight is number one for me uh but yeah man dunkirk is just great and, and i'm surprised to have seen it i think twice since it uh it was released uh or it's after theaters and uh, it's just a, I mean, I, I could watch it again today. That that scene at the end with Tom Hardy just kind of floating. I mean, it's mm. there's so many so many great uh, shots. Uh, something else. Th- this kind of transcends what we're talking about here. But I was thinking about uh, movies that I had seen before and thought were fine or or, or, or decent, and then watched them again because of the podcast and was like, oh, this is amazing. And one of those is a film we talked about for our Stanley Kubrick summer series a couple years ago, our Summer of Stan, the 1964 Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I watched it years before that and I thought it was, it was fine. Uh, but watching it again knowing what happens already and and just kind of maybe just paying closer attention as we were preparing for that retrospective 
And I just, I, I thought that movie was fantastic. I mean, just, it's just incredible. And so I was really glad to be able to talk about it again on the podcast or talk about it on the podcast. And it pushed me to watch it again and, and appreciate it a little bit more. I, I had a similar thing happen. I saw Dr. Strangelove in high school for the first time, I think. And, you know, I was sort of like, I was a dumb teenager. I didn't know what a good movie was. And so I kind of was like, yeah, it's fine. And then, you know, I've, I've seen it a couple of times since then. And it gets better with every viewing. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Film I didn't change my mind on. The Shape of Water, Kevin. Uh, didn't change my mind on that. Sorry. Part of me, Part of me was hoping that the biggest disagreement in seeing and believing history would have a heal have its healing balm occur here on on this episode where you finally saw the light realize the error of your ways and and join the fold but Ooh. <laughs> i guess it wasn't to be it wasn't to be no not 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 to be not to not not this time kevin uh not this time did you change your mind on um jurassic park fallen kingdom uh i i mean i haven't bothered to rewatch it since then so i don't know maybe if i went back and saw it i'd i'd suddenly think it's not terrible which it is you know (laughs) i i could be wrong i could be wrong if there's anything that this episode has taught me it's that i have been wrong and i will probably be wrong again i just hope that it's about something other than jurassic park fallen kingdom yeah well (laughs) you you never know you never know listeners Is there a movie that you've changed your mind on after viewing it a second time or maybe even just thinking about it a little bit more? Make sure to let us know. And we got to end this episode by just saying, hey, thanks a lot. Uh, Speaking for myself, I appreciate all of you listeners. I appreciate speaking to you every week and hopefully bringing some good thoughts, bringing some good opinions. I get it wrong. I mispronounce words. But uh, it's, a, it's a joy, really. It's been a joy to do this podcast, 300 episodes. And Kevin, it's been a joy to do it with, with you as well. 100%. I would like to say something else here so that I can join in on that, but I don't know that I can really improve on what you said. So basically, listeners, just imagine everything that Wade just said in my voice and uh, you've got the same sentiments uh, that are going through my head right now. <laughs> it's been a blast, and here's to the next 300. Here's to the next 300. Listeners, thank you, as always, for listening to this week's episode and the previous 299. It's brought to you by ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.